I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I love you more than ever, more than time, and more than love. I love you more than money, and more than the stars above. Love you more than madness, more than waves upon the sea. Love you more than life itself, you mean that much to me. Ever since you walked right in, the circle's been complete. I've said goodbye to haunted rooms and faces in the street. To the courtyard of the jester, which is hidden from the sun, I love you more than ever, and I haven't yet begun. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about Wedding Song, the final track from the 1974 album Planet Waves, is the host of the Love That Album podcast, Maurice Bershinsky. Maurice, did I say that right? Uh, you forgot the T, but that's okay. Oh, damn it. But, you know. As long as you don't call me late for dinner, I'm okay with it. It's all, good. all right, excellent, good enough. Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I have a very simple name to say, so I, I appreciate when you when people are nice to me when I get their names wrong. So, anyway, welcome to the show, uh, Maurice. This is awesome. You're ha- hailing all the way from Australia. Yes, that's correct. Thank you so much for having me on. I've, as I think I said in a correspondence to you during the week, I've never had the nerve to tackle. Bob Dylan album on my Love That Album podcast. So this is sort of like dipping the toe in the water. We'll speak about <laughs> one song and see if I can have the guts to to tackle Bob Dylan. I know that there are a lot of Bob Dylan fans out there who get very precious if you don't quite get all the subtext. So I thought, well, we'll take a, a song that, you know, on the surface seems simple and uh, we'll see where we go with that. Absolutely. Yeah, I get I get really mostly nothing but positive responses. So I assume that those fans and I know they're out there, they must just like not like the show and they don't listen. So, they, you know, they're just like, oh, that guy's an idiot. He doesn't have anything. So they don't even bother. So uh, I'm very thankful for that. Why don't you uh, ex- explain to people what the Love That Album podcast is before we even get into the Dylan part? Oh, thank you. Uh, Love That Album has been going on now for, well, I think about seven and a half years. And uh, I started doing it every two weeks and every three weeks, now once a month. <laughs> um, uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm slack in that regard. And uh, the, the whole purpose was, I think when I started, it was shortly after I found podcasts to begin with. And there were so many film podcasts out there. And that was predominantly what I was listening to, film-related podcasts. And at the time, it didn't seem to me that there were many, if any, uh, podcasts that were talking about music in the same way or albums that were talking in the same way as people were talking about film. And of course, like now there's a ton of them out there and I'm really happy about that. But at the time I thought, well, I'm going to see if I can fill that gap. And I just basically sort of decided, well, I'll go through, you know, uh, find other people in the film community or the music community who I know love music and, and we'll just pick an album and dissect it through to its bare bones. And in the beginning, my editing was really, really terrible, if it was there <laughs> at all. Uh, I like to think I've sort of got, I got a hang on it a little bit now. And I also started doing it where I talk about one song at a time. And I know that there are still a lot of album discussion podcasts out there that still take that approach and no problem for that. But for me, I sort of came to think that going one song or going song after song on an album was a bit like talking about a book chapter after chapter or film scene after scene. I nowadays more or less will talk about what the thematic elements of the album are and then quote a song that might sort of uh, you know, give, be an example of that theme or right. we might talk about, well, the instrumentation, the drumming is really amazing. And here's a song that is a good example of that and we'll sort of use that sort of technique so we might not even necessarily talk about every song on the album but it's just more to give either the uninitiated a feel of what the album is about or maybe the wise people out there who already know the album can nod their head and say "Mm, yes yes very good or that sort of thing anyway so that's what that is about what are some of the uh, albums you guys have covered oh well uh okay so in like in the recent few months the last uh, well, okay, so this month we just did like an end-of-year special 
uh, as I always do, you know, get a bunch of music journalists to talk about what their favourite first-time listens of the year were. Uh, prior to that, the, um, the album that we did properly was uh, XTC's English Settlement. Uh, we've recently done Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball. Mm. Um, oh gosh, now that now that I'm on the spot, I can't actually remember. <laughs> uh, 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 so yeah, those those are two that are recently done. Like in way back in the beginning, uh, one of my music journalist friends. I think the very first episode that we did. Uh, he's a big fan of Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. I prefer. Uh, the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle. So our very first episode was us going head to head, talking about <laughs> why our album was better than the other one. And um, uh, you know, we did get the knack. I think a couple of episodes later, and uh, I, I like to do a lot of local albums as well, a lot of Australian albums, so we can get those people outside of Australia who might not know our local scene to uh, become familiar with the music from my backyard that I really love. So, you know, I'd spoken to this guy, uh, Chuck Jenkins, who was for many years the main songwriter of a great band called The Ice Cream Hands. Uh, another favourite band from here was Weddings, Parties, Anything. So I spoke with uh, a friend of mine from Adelaide about uh, my favourite of their albums called The Big Don't Argue. So anyway, if you go to lovethatalbum.blogspot.com, shameless plug, uh, <laughs> go through the list. I should also make mention that uh, a friend of mine from Ann Arbor, uh, uh, Eric Peterson, also has been doing for quite a few years, although he's taken a break the last few months. He does a show, basically, which we run under the same RSS feed called Love That Album, the compilation edition. So he pretty much tackles compilations, anthologies, soundtracks, uh, and he's very much into punk and alt-country I mean, I like a lot of old country stuff, but he, he tackles albums that I wouldn't necessarily do. And I like the fact that someone giving a different perspective, but he does it in the compilation series. So takes a different angle. And whereas my shows go for about an hour and a half to two hours, he is very succinct and does everything in about 25 minutes to half an hour. So, um, yeah, anyway, he's coming back in January, I believe. So uh, there you go. Two shows under the one banner. All right. Well, very cool. We're, we'll have that link in the show notes, so don't worry about it being a shameless plug. Uh, so, uh, Thank you, so this is your first episode on the show. I have to ask everybody when they're, when they're here for the first time, which is uh, explain to me, uh, Maurice Persinski, ruler of Australia. Like, What is your secret <laughs> origin uh, with uh, Bob Dylan's music? Well, I guess there's three parts to it, but I'll remain very quick about it. So when I was growing up, I had two older sisters, well, still do, and um, they, I lived in a household that, because of my parents' love for classical music, was mainly classical music oriented, but my two older sisters were very much into folk music. One of them was more into American folk music of the 60s, so Joan Baez and Peter, Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan, and my other sister was into more British folk, so groups like Steel Eye Span and Fairport Convention. Uh, so from the one who was into Bob Dylan, I, I guess they were both into Bob Dylan, and, but they sort of never got beyond side two, I think, of bringing it all back home, which was <laughs> called, called Subterranean Homesick Blues in Australia for some unknown reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, so, yeah, so I'd always hear that sort of stuff around the house. Um, and when I think it was in uh, grade two or three at my school, there was a radio show that we would be listening to in class every week called Let's Make Music. And it was a way to get kids to get a love of singing. And so we'd get these books that the radio station would provide and, and inevitably Blowing in the Wind was one of those songs that um, we'd be learning and singing is sure. part of the classroom exercise. So I remember that one very well through that. But I guess the most important thing where I discovered Dylan and that I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I love this. Uh, I think about 1975, uh, was it 75 or 76? I think where um, Desire had come out. and 76. 76, okay. So Hurricane was a huge top 40 hit over here. And I'd be listening to the local radio stations, 3XY or 3DB, and 
every chance that Hurricane would come on the radio, I'd be turning it up or I'd be putting the tape recorder in there so I could play it back and listen to it later. And I just could not get enough of that song. Uh, and I think I'd be going around to my cousin's place and you know, she had a copy of Desire and I'd be playing that over and over and over again. But that was where I decided, oh, this guy's for me. I just loved everything about that album. It was sort of rock and sort of not. You know, the violin on a rock album, it just <laughs> it, it didn't make sense to me and yet it completely worked. And hearing uh, Emmylou Harris's beautiful background vocals um, and uh, what else? Uh, uh, the, and just I, I love the rhythm section. I mean, at the time, I, I've been a drummer since I was about 10 years old. Uh, so just the sound of uh, you know, the drums and uh, Rob Stoner on the bass, it was just, they were, they were a really crack rhythm section. And I paid attention to that sort of stuff even back then. I just loved everything about that album. And I think the first album, though, of his that I actually bought, I saved and saved and saved, was uh, an album that only got released in Australasia. I mean, maybe since it's been released in the States, although you know, probably no need for it. It was called Masterpieces, Bob Dylan. Oh, right, the set, yeah. Yeah, a three-album set. He was doing a, a tour of Australia, I think, just before Street Legal had come out, and uh, all the record stores were you know, had hundreds of copies of this album. It was a really big deal, and I saved and saved all my pocket money and bought it. And I, I, still, I still have it. I still have it. I think it's a really, really excellent anthology because it has, you know, a bunch of songs that were obvious, uh, but also, you know, a few things that I thought were maybe less obvious that you would put in an anthology like this, like uh, George Jackson or, or song. Right. I bought it for that reason. I have every other song, but I bought it just for George Jackson. Right, right. Well, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, for me, such a really good overview of Dylan's work and side four, which was mainly all the acoustic freewheeling Bob Dylan sort of stuff, but it closes off with Hurricane. So needless to say, side four was the one that I played the most. <laughs> Absolutely loved. So, um, yeah, that was my um, my rather longish answer to a short question, but that was my introduction to uh, to Bob Dylan. Oh, that's fantastic. Have you seen him live? I have. I've seen him three times. Uh, the first time was in, I think, was it 85 when he came out with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? Saw him here at uh, Kuyong Tennis Stadium, which had stopped being used as a tennis venue and as uh, was just being used, I think, for concert performances. So, yeah, got to see him with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And, you know, sad for me, I've never seen Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers under any other circumstances. So I only mm -hmm. got to see four songs as... Tom Petty doing his own material, unfortunately. But, yeah, still a really, really great concert. In 1996, I was traveling overseas with my wife for about six months, and um, we're in England. Uh, my uh, One of my friends over there said, um, I've gone and bought us tickets to what's uh, called the uh, uh, Prince Charles Charity Trust concert. And I think for the grand sum of eight pounds, I got to see The Who, uh, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan uh, and Jules Holland from Squeeze, his big, his <laughs> big band. Uh, there was Alanis Morissette, but you know that was toilet break for me. Uh, but Bob <laughs> Dylan in his band had uh, Ron Wood on guitar in that band, and he he was smiling. He actually looked happy to be there, and it was a, a really <laughs> cracking energy, energetic set. Uh, he did uh, Highway 61. That was the highlight of a set. Uh, absolutely amazing. Really full-on energetic performance. Absolutely loved it. And then I think it was 2001 or 2002 that he came here and just – he's. I went to see him there. I think a, a friend had a spare ticket, so I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll go. Um, I can't remember what it was, but it, I think it was uh, If Dogs Run Free that he played – from really yeah 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 he pulled that out from um from new morning and i was absolutely beside myself thinking whoa what a what a what a, what a, what a good it was um it was great what did that sound like <laughs> it, it was good it was it was a really good set and he he was still not quite at that stage where he was only singing two notes so um <laughs> so his, his voice was still in good form but he's been here i think about another i don't know four or five times since and i've not had the heart to bring myself to go see him since then. I mean, I've heard a bunch of bootlegs and 
And I thought, yeah, look, I, I, I love him, but I, I just couldn't bring myself to to go see him um, where I sort of thought, well, he could be doing it by doing it by the number, which I know that even in like you know the days when he was still singing great, I know that uh, Clinton Halen in his book had said, well, you know, you went to see Bob Dylan, you were taking your chances even right. during the great right. tour of you know 75, 76, the Rolling Thunder tour. They said there were nights that were sublime and there were nights where he was just dialing it in. So I thought, right, you know, I've got these three great concerts in my head. I, I, I think I'll leave it at that. So I've not seen him since. All right, fair That's- enough, fair enough. That's cool, though. I mean, they said he's – there's a couple of big things uh, related to his shows in Australia. You mentioned seeing him with Tom Petty. Of course, that, that concert video, the hard-to-handle uh, video uh, vi- that was a, an HBO movie was, was from an Australian show. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, that, I, that I didn't even know that. I, hadn't, I haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah. It's directed by the film director Gillian Anderson, who is, I believe, Australian. And so she shot that mm. for of Dylan. And then uh, when uh, he was at the Oscars, uh, when he won the Oscar for Things Have Changed, he was beamed in from Australia. Right, right, right. I do remember that. Yes, yes, yes. That was uh, that was quite exciting. He was, on, uh, he was on tour that time. That's right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Bob likes make it all the way down there, which is good for him. You know, man loves to, to travel. So, well, that's that's all fantastic. That's that's just uh, wonderful stuff. So, so now we're going to talk about the song that you're here to talk about, which is uh, Wedding Song, the final song on Planet Waves, as I mentioned. Now, the thing that's sort of you know unique and then it's in, in its ununiqueness with Bob is that is from the research I did, Planet Waves, the album, was – in everyone in everyone's mind of Bob's the bands the producer who was ostensibly Rob Stoner you mentioned Rob Stoner um they considered the album finished like it was it was done they all the songs were sequenced they were and they were doing a mixing session which is usually right at the end of this process and then Bob comes in and says I have a song I want to play and he plays this song by himself he did it in one take and that was it. And that's the album. That's the version we hear on the album. I mean, mm. it's kind of from he just had this sort of burst of creative energy and bang, here's this song called Wedding Song. And then that's it. It, it finishes the album. So why did you want to talk about this one? Um, look, I knew I wanted to do something off Planet Waves because I mentioned before as well, New Morning. New Morning and Planet Waves had always represented to me two albums that had been really lightly dismissed in in the light of what was to come with blood on the tracks. And I never thought mm-hmm. that was fair. I really love both of those albums. And I've often sort of gone and seen them as maybe like uh, Bob's, at least from a production perspective, Bob's equivalent of tonight's the night by Neil Young. It's sloppy, but in a good way, if that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe I wish it was another word besides sloppy. Um, and wedding song is a song to me that, it, well, it's not necessarily a contradiction, but even on the, the surface, it does seem like it is a song of it, – it's, it's really a song of passion, of love. I love you more than ever. I, there's no one besides you in my life, and that re- appeals to the romantic in me. And yet I think there are slight things in the lyric where – well, I mean, it's – it, first of all, I think it should be called the anniversary song rather than the wedding song because right, right, there's yeah. several years down the track. But there's slight, you know, there's hints there of you know, not everything's been great along the way. And I just there's a romantic in me that probably sort of was drawn into it. But since sort of thinking about this for the show, there's things I think, whoa, you know, what's this? Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I mean, that's more about revenge than than love and I, I i like the little contradictions there and um there's the things about we can't save what went down in the flood and you think right well th- this is not just uh, rose-colored glasses there's there's issues yeah we've had problems but i'm prepared to work our way past them and i mean there, there's also the thing with dylan whereby which i find interesting in that we i guess we sort of like to think that when any songwriter goes and writes something this personal we tend to imagine oh it must be autobiographical and it well could have been but when we sort of think that only a few months later he was writing idiot wind which was really pretty nasty and uh, we, we tended to think, well, this is about you know, his love for Sarah Dillon, but only a few months later, he's putting out Idiot Wind, and that's really a, a very vitriolic 
very nasty sort of piece of work. And often Bob could write things that were quite vitriolic. I'm sure that, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. you mentioned this a lot on your podcast. Um, so this stands apart in Bob's repertoire as being probably, on the one hand, one of the most romantic things that he's ever done uh, or one of the greatest dedications of love that he's ever done. But even there, there's just these little bits that seem to contradict what's happening in his real life. So you sort of got to wonder, is it Bob Dylan being autobiographical or is it just Bob Dylan being the songwriter and writing a great work of fiction that just happened at one point in his life to have coincided how he felt about the woman he was married to. So I, I like all these little things about it, but just on the surface, it's just a gorgeous melody and it is the most different song on Planet Waves being the one song that is just him. And because him, the guitar and the harmonica is all in some ways also a real throwback to those first three or four albums that he did, which was solo. And yet probably the diehard Bob Dylan fans would have said, well, he never would have made a song like that in those first few years when it was you know, full of uh, the nasty jibes or he was writing the, the protest songs. He would never have written anything this heart on the sleeve romantic on those first. Oh yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, the stuff about there is kind of a lot of hard won wisdom in this, mm. in this song. I mean, and it, and it, of course it's hard to, to listen to this song and not think of, of course, what was coming, you know, in the next album. I mean, you can't help it. I mean, you just know that like he, he, this is a song of utter devotion, but yeah, he does talk about it. And there is a lot of really negative imagery here or at least dark imagery i mean it's, he go, after i quoted the first two verses and then he goes on he says you breathed on me and made my life a richer one to live when i was deep in poverty you taught me how to give dried the tears up from my dreams and pulled me from the hole quenched my thirst and satisfied the burning in my soul you gave me babies one two three what is more you saved my life eye for eye and tooth for tooth your love cuts like a knife my thoughts of you don't ever rest they'd kill me if i lie I'd sacrifice the world to you and watch my senses die. This is one of the songs that, as you just mentioned, like it seems extremely personal. I mean, to me, I would marry it up with, no pun intended, uh, (laughs) Sarah at the end of Desire and that it is so specific. Uh, I mean, he talks about you gave me babies one, two, three. Well, that's, of course, what happened when they were up in Woodstock is that Sarah Dillon had a bunch of they had a bunch of kids together. Yes. Um, And then he he goes on and he says, you know, the tune that is yours and mine to play upon this earth will play it out the best we know, whatever it is worth. What's lost is lost. We can't regain what went down in the flood. They're down in the flood. Happiness to me is you and I love you more than blood. It's never been my duty to remake the world at large, nor is it my intention to sound the battle charge. Because I love you more than all of that with a love that doesn't bend. And if there is eternity, I'd love you there again. I mean, that line in particular feels completely Dylan-ish because he says, it's never been my duty to remake the world at large. Well, most most people don't. That doesn't even occur to them that that's an option. You know, like most people don't go through life thinking they're going to remake the world at large. But Bob Dylan, of one of the few people on planet Earth that maybe had that opportunity. Mm. And here he is stating it. You know, I mean, this is a guy saying, I could go out there. I could go out and travel the world and be the sort of, uh, you know, folk singer and singing about social injustice and stuff and try and change the world. But I'd rather be there with you. I mean, to most people, that's not a thing you have an option to. So I've always had, I don't want to say difficulty because I like the song a lot. But it's to me, this song is so specific that I feel like what I get out of it is, first of all, as you said, it's a beautiful melody. But it also it is it does feel like in this instance, I'm getting a peek into maybe not his life, but his inner monologue in some capacity. And that's what I like about it is that it feels such it's so much an, an insight to to where Bob was at in 1974 as a songwriter, as opposed to, as you talked about in the early 60s, when he never would have written something like this. But that's kind of how I've always enjoyed it is that it's like, yeah, I, I can't relate to the idea of. You know, saying, I'm not going to go out on tour, babe. I'm going to stay there with you. Of course, knowing he's just about to go on tour and do all this, going on this huge tour with the band. But it's 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 a very interesting song that it is so specific to being Bob Dylan. Uh, look, I think it's interesting that you quoted that specific verse. You know, he sings, it's never been my duty to remake the world at large. And just sort of thinking that 
those first few albums, those protest albums, where he had the the title of uh, uh, the world. Um, I'm trying to think what's the proper word. Uh, but at yeah. one point he was called Conscience of the World. Right. Like what a what a title to drop on somebody. And it, look, yeah, that would have been so completely overwhelming for him. He was just a guy who'd come from Minnesota who wanted to be a rock yeah. and roller. And he wrote these protest songs because it seems, oh, right, well, this is what the thing is at the moment. Okay, I'll do a few rock and roll songs. Oh, no, they're going and you know, giving me this great mantle. I don't want that. I just want to go off and do rock and roll. Hey, who's this band, The Hawks? Okay, yeah, let's. I'm going to go to <laughs> right. them. And, and I'm going to go uh, really annoy Pete Seeger by turning up electric at Newport. <laughs> um, so there is some truth there when he says it was never my duty to remake the world at large. Um, and I, I was asking myself, you know, when he says, I never wanted to do that, I just want to be here for you, are the two mutually exclusive? You know, the world was still waiting, though, for the next lot of words of wisdom. And after the motorbike accident, he was holed up in uh, Woodstock and he was making Nashville Skyline and he was making Dylan and Self Portrait and all these records. So, yeah, I guess maybe it is mutually exclusive. You can either be the great oracle of wisdom or you can be domesticated. And um, right. But the world felt that they owned him. And he said, no, you don't. Um, this is this is what I want to do. But this song would have seemed more obviously autobiographical if it had come three, four years earlier. But knowing what we know about what happened just a few months later, it does seem to be uh, – you're asking, is he just a genius songwriter who is just writing a really great love song or is he – I mean, I think it's been suggested that this might have been a song of reconciliation rather than saying this is where we are at the moment. It's him saying to Sarah, listen, I know that we have problems, but please, you've got to understand I do love you or I want to throw my heart to you. Um so is it a song of reconciliation or is it just a genius work of fiction? I, right. I mean, I assume it's probably a little from column A and a little from column B because, as as I mentioned, like how this song came at the end of this cycle. And this was not a song that any of uh, anybody else in the band or Rob Stoner or any of the any of the people that were working on the record had seen. And, of course, all the other songs, not all, but most of the other songs on Planet Waves are much more upbeat. Yeah. Uh, Forever Young or You Angel You or Never Say Goodbye. They have a uh, on a night like this. They have a much more sort of communal, upbeat feeling to them. And then all of a sudden you've got this at the end, which, again, is is a song of utter devotion, but also has that dark tone to it. And you got to wonder, was there something that happened to him just in those last couple of days while they were making the record? And all of a sudden that just... You know, he had this mad creative rush and mm. then he came in and brought it in or was he waiting for the whole time? I mean, this is this is one of these times where Bob ends a all ends a rock album, a plugged in rock album with an acoustic finale. He did that on Empire Burlesque and he did. I mean, he he likes to do that. He like Desolation Road to a certain extent has that same form. Right, right. You know, a bunch of songs of like this cacophony of sound. And then for the last song, he brings it way down. It gets super quiet at the end. And so um, one of the other things I like about this this song is you hear this slight like tick, tick, tick sound as the song goes on. And from what I understand, that is uh, the that is Dylan's uh, buttons on Dylan's coat <laughs> wrapping against the microphone stand. And apparently uh, there was some suggestion of, hey, Bob, you know, we can hear buttons. And he was like, well, too bad. You know, like that was <laughs> it. And that gets to the heart of what he likes to do is like get to the meat of the song. And not worry about some small detail that doesn't matter. And to me, it gives it just to hear that extra little, you just hear it throughout the song, these little sounds. It just, it feels almost like it's a, like you're in the room with him. Of course you are because you're listening to it. But I mean, it feels like you're sitting right at his feet as he's singing this because you're hearing this sound you don't normally hear in a nice, clean rock song. Yeah, look, it's interesting that you mentioned about the buttons on, um, uh, about the buttons sort of going against his guitar because I made a few notes here about things that only someone like Bob Dylan could get away with uh, from, <laughs> from a musical perspective. So the three things which I've made note of, um, one, I, I've written down, you wouldn't set a Swiss clock by a song like this. I'm not necessarily saying that he speeds up and slows down, although 
you know, if I put a metronome, maybe he does. Um, but if you if you listen to this, and, and mind you, you know, spoiler alert, if you're listening out there, you'll never hear the song the same way again if you haven't sort of picked up on this. But after every couple of lines of of each verse, he throws in, so you might get like two bars per line, and then you, you get like an extra couple of beats or maybe an extra bar at the end of each line of dialogue, which in you know, conventional uh, song structure, you would never do. Uh, it's almost like he finishes the second line and he's trying to remember, what's, how does the next line go? Oh, yeah, okay. And then he goes <laughs> and sings the third line. Um, and who would do that on a major label record? What major world artist? Bob Dylan, of course. He can completely get away with it. <laughs> it sounds great. Uh, and uh, what are the other two points? Uh, to oh yeah so in in one verse so he says i love you more than madness and he should be playing the f chord on the word love but he's still playing the g chord until after the word you and it could be a stylistic decision but i think it's just more about bob being bob and say oh yeah oh hang on i've got to go to that next chord so he doesn't quite get the, the timing of the cause when he's got to come in on the next one correct. Uh, once again, as you say, it's Bob getting to the heart of it. The, the final thing, and I saw this on a, uh, on a guitar website. There's a guitar chord website. They made mention of this, and I've listened to this song hundreds of times, and yet why did I not notice this? It's you know, staring me right in the face of this. So the, the third line of each verse it, the chords are different. Um, uh, so, like in, in, uh, in the second verse, where he uh, where he'll sing uh, in the courtyard of the jester, which is hidden from the sun, the chords are F, C, and G for a fraction of a second, and then D minor. And it sounds almost like he's thinking, "I'll play G." Oh no, no, I want to do D minor. The third verse, he does <laughs> F, C, and D minor. Then the fourth verse, he's playing F, A minor. C and G. It's different. It, it could be a stylistic decision, but or, or a, de- a very deliberate decision. But to my head, I think it's just Bob sort of saying, oh, "What were the chords that I played here?" Uh, and then goes and, <laughs> uh, and I like goes, your imitation of Bob. <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you. And, and then he goes and just plays it. Oh yeah, yeah. This is the road I'll take to get to the fourth line. First, second, and fourth lines are all as they normally should be. And yeah, it could be argued yeah, he want, that he deliberately wanted to do that, but I just think it's Bob not really quite sure of how he was supposed to get to the fourth line. Um, just as a point of reference, there's a version of the wedding song done by Maria Moldau, who is like a folk Ah, uh, right, yes. I heard that on YouTube. Yeah. Right, right, right. And she does it technically perfectly, and it's uh, – the. the the timing is right. There's none of this extra bar at the end of the second line. The chords are consistent all the way through and is beautifully played and it's perfect. And she sings lovely and it doesn't have energy of, it doesn't have any of the soul of Bob's version. And if there's any Maria Moldau fans out there, please don't contact me. I I don't want to know. But (laughs) I, I, I like her version, but as you were saying before, Rob, Bob getting to the meat of well, the heart of the matter, the meat of the sandwich, whatever other cliche, uh, it, it works probably because of these little things that was as much why we love who Bob Dylan is. And I'm sort of wondering whether um, I'm sort of wondering whether uh, anyone from the band was in the studio at the time he was recording this because I think I'd gone and read that um, uh, Robbie – oh, why am I having a brain fart moment? Uh, Robbie Roberts. Robbie uh, – thank you. Uh, I'm an idiot. Uh, I sort of, <laughs> you can edit that. Uh, I'm sort of wondering whether Robbie Robertson was in the studio at that time because from what I'd read, I think in the Clinton Halen book, was that uh, Robbie Robertson knew that Bob wouldn't take any musical advice from him. Uh, so he was going to, I think it was Rob Fraboni, the producer, well, the engineer on the album. 
And yes, Rob. For I just realized I've been saying Rob Stoner the whole time. It's Rob. <laughs> so I, I'm an idiot too. Uh, Rob Fraboni. That's uh, who I meant to say. The, I'm sorry. I apologize, everybody. For anybody listening to this point, is like this idiot. Rob Stoner wasn't there. Rob Fraboni. Thank you so much, Maurice. My, now I don't feel as bad. My, my oh, pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so anyway, Robbie Robertson would go through uh, Rob Fraboni to say, "Can you please make sure that um, uh, uh, tell this to Bob? He needs to." fix up on this because he didn't think that as a musician ironically bob would take any advice but he thought as the engineer as the sort of de facto producer of the album even though it doesn't really have a producer i've been led to believe that he would take advice from rob Fraboni. so he was he was taking the advice through, uh, as a as a medium through through Fraboni. right uh, so i'm wondering if Robbie Robertson was actually in the studio that day because surely he would have said, um, "Hey, uh, Bob, a little bit <laughs> sloppy there on on uh, by how you're going through the verses or you know, that sort of thing." So, anyway, I just sort of probably far too much information there or far too many thoughts, but that was um, no. That's, this is the show for that. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, there's I've talked about this on previous episodes of the show where we've covered other Planet Wave songs, but I mean, there are in that one Clinton Halen book, uh, the recording sessions. There are more interesting stories about the recording of Planet Waves than I'd say any of the other albums because it was he seemed Bob seemed so unsure of himself. Um, it's kind of remarkable, and I, I'm going to repeat this story, but who cares? Uh, it's from the, the Forever Young episode that we did way, way back, where he did the slow version, the, the one that ends side one, and everyone just sort of sat there and was stunned. They thought it was so beautiful, and apparently after that, they all wandered out and went and saw a movie. Bob went and saw a movie, and some other guys got some drinks. Like They just said, let's take a break, and Rob Fraboni, Fraboni um, decided to pull that to the master reel which is this thing where you're basically saying, okay, these are the cuts we're definitely going to use. So I'm going to put them over here. And Bob comes back in and he's like, what are you doing? And for Boney's like, well, I'm, I'm putting forever young on the master reel. And Bob goes, we're not going to use that. And for Boney's like, what are you crazy? We're not going to use that. Why not? And he said, well, apparently some old friend of Bob's had come by and the friend had brought a girlfriend, and the girlfriend heard Forever Young and said, geez, Bob, what are you getting mushy in your old age? <laughs> and that he was ready to just drop the song for that reason. And luckily, Fraboni said, yeah, what are you crazy? I'll listen to her. But, I mean, that's, that's how sort of insecure he was. And so I think it is very interesting that, yeah, I read that too, that, that Robertson had to kind of filter his criticisms or even just his constructive comments through Rob Fraboni because otherwise Bob would just sort of knee-jerk not take it right 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 i actually believe that that song dirge that's on um that's on uh, planet waves may have been aimed at the woman who'd made that comment about forever young <laughs> on the surface it seems like it's a pre-idiot wind idiot wind aimed at sarah and that would have been just incredible you know the dr dr bob mr dylan you know to these two songs aimed at sarah but i do believe it was originally called dirge for martha or something like that who and wow. who, who was who was the woman who had gone and made that comment and lord knows if she'd heard wedding song in uh, instead of uh, forever young what she would have said yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. People, you know, just sit there and listen. Don't don't make don't make comments. I think Bob Dylan knows what he's doing at this point. Um, so the the final two verses of the song, it goes on and says, "Oh, can't you see that you were born to stand by my side? I was born to be with you. You were born to be my bride. You're the other half of what I am. You're the missing piece. I love you more than ever with a love that doesn't cease. You turn the tide on me each day and teach my eyes to see. Just being next to you is a natural thing to me, and I could never let you go, no matter what goes on." Because I love you more than ever now that the past is gone. And like I said, it, it ends on that kind of bittersweet note of, yeah, we've been through a lot of hard stuff, but we've come out on the other side and, and hopefully we're better off for it. And we, of course, we all know what happened later on. Mm. But at this moment, at least, he is sort of making a, re, you know, recommitting himself to, uh, or at least the character in the song, let's put it that way, is recommitting himself to uh, to his his love. So it's, 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 it's a really... It's an interesting song, a remarkable performance. It was only played live nine times from January 7th, 1974 through February 11th, 1974 during this big tour he did with the band, the big arena tour. And um, that tour had uh, acoustic 
uh, parts. There were parts where Bob would come out in the middle of the show and just do acoustic songs. And this song was done, as far as I know, only in an elect- only in a, an acoustic form. These nine times, and that was it. He's dropped it. It's pretty much for- forgotten. So I always wonder, like, what does he think about these songs? Is he ever tempted to go back to them? Uh, or is it, or is this an artifact of of 1974 and there there it's ever it's always going to stay? Well, who knows? I mean, as I said to you at the start of the show, you know, last time I saw Dylan back in whatever it was, 2001, 2002, he <laughs> pulled dogs that run free, yeah. when dogs run free. So it's just what what do I feel like this? What do I feel like doing tonight? And I think that Clinton Halen book, Behind the Shades, had said in several parts of the book that he would go to the band members, you know, maybe just before they're about to hit the stage and say, you know what, I think I'm going to pull out such and such a song. And, uh, you know, just, I feel like doing that, you know, there's, and that's something that I guess is also really appealing about Dylan. He's always been spontaneous. I mean, I guess if you're a musician, it's probably very frustrating because you're thinking, you know, Bob, you might've given us a little bit of practice time, but that's just not the way how it is. <laughs> Every album is recorded inside a week, you know, one take wonder. I mean, that's the the big theme of Behind the Shades is that he did not want to spend a lot of time on recording any individual album. It was just, you know, let's go in, let's do it, and it's it's out in a week. That's it. I can't remember anything about it, but I imagine that something as overproduced as Empire Burlesque might have taken longer. But right, right, right. But <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't imagine that anything else has gone on uh, that long and certainly you know that is all part of who he is let's not dwell on this too much and you know 20 years down the track you know I, well you know what guys i just feel like pulling out the wedding song I haven't done it in in a while and uh, you know coming on a bob dylan tour to you and you say it's only been performed nine times but that's only been performed live by bob dylan i've been i'm sure that it's been well, performed yes. thousands of times at weddings and i'd certainly rather hear wedding song being performed at a wedding than someone doing every breath you take because i don't actually know what it's really about <laughs> uh, so, um. do you have to do uh, why don't you do why don't you don't not do it uh, just the way you are and uh, sing here why don't you sing this sing, right. sing about love love cutting like a knife why don't, why don't you do that oh okay uh, sure okay uh, right. absolutely. and ironically or maybe not ironically you know both songs written by songwriters uh, dedications of love who in a short period later were long since separated from uh, from the spouse that they wrote these beautiful love songs for the rock game is tough man uh, <laughs> so what he could say well i said i think that is going to do it for wedding song uh this is a said it's it's a great great tune again if you haven't listened to it if you're listening to this go get planet waves it's a it's a really interesting album uh maurice thank you so much for doing this man i really appreciate it. i would love getting to talk to new bob fans and this was just terrific uh look i'm as I said at the start, I'm so appreciative to have had this chance to to talk to you. I'm, I'm a fan of your podcast. I really, really enjoy what you're doing. I think it's great work that you know someone has the nerve to tackle Bob <laughs> one song at a time. I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, it, it's yeah. I, I still don't know whether I'll have the nerve to tackle a whole Bob album on Love That Album. But if I do, it will have been because you gave me that opportunity to uh, just speak for ages about the one song and just sort of really delve into it. But uh, any Delanophiles out there who don't like what I've said, don't follow me up. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. Well, if you can, maybe you should start with like down in the groove. Start with something. Start with something <laughs> one, easy. One that no one likes. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Right. Exactly. You don't worry about insulting anybody before you move up to Blood on the Tracks or Highway 61 <laughs> or whatever. So, uh, why don't you tell people once again where they can find your show? Okay. So, um, uh, if you want to uh, have a listen to Love That Album, it's on. You can either search it out on iTunes. We're also now on Spotify and Stitcher. Uh, you can. Get it from the website, which is lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Uh, and I also host a second podcast or co-host a second podcast called See Here. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. And we basically, there's three of us, uh, myself, uh, a, a friend in Canada and a friend in England. Uh, so we really are an international podcast. And our focus is to talk about films that ha- where music is the main topic of the film it's not we don't do musicals people have mis- had the mistaken idea oh you talk about musicals no i mean they're not excluded but the idea is the film has to have in some way 
be the story of a musician or it has to be about music in some way. So, you know, we've done films like, uh, I mean, we're the only podcast out there that's talked about Gigi Allen and the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Uh, so ah, That's two, two things I would not think to put together. But they have the common link because they are both about music uh, or musicians. So um, <laughs> we've done it. So we've just come up to our um, uh, fifth anniversary. We do it once a month. We've been doing this now for five years. And uh, our latest episode is uh, an interview with the great Alan Arkush, director of Rock and Roll High School. And we speak to him not just about his films, but because he runs, oh, he, he contributes to a great site called Trailers from Hell, and that, oh, I love that site. Oh, uh, it's magnificent. And his he, he talks about a whole lot of films, but his specialty is music-related films. And he's you know spoken about things like you know the girl can't help it and High Fidelity and Almost Famous. And I just wanted to get him on to talk about his time working at the Fillmore East, which is really really fascinating, and about his favorite rock and roll films and really a, a, a greater interview subject I could not have hoped for. He was just absolutely wonderful and so giving of his time. So um, yeah, that was, that was a huge thrill and a, a fantastic fifth birthday present to us at, uh, at see here. So if you want to follow that up, uh, yeah, we're see here. Um, dot podbean dot com or you can get us through the other sort of places i mentioned before spotify stitcher or itunes that's fantastic yeah that sounds great i mean i'm a fan of his movies in fact the just to kind of tie it all in of a connection between alan arkish and bob dylan is uh, alan arkish directed a movie called get crazy yes and and in get crazy lou reed plays a dylan-esque type figure and there's even a scene where lou reed as this musician is basically sitting in a live action recreation of the cover to bringing it all back home i'm kicking there's myself the, that i didn't remember to ask him about that but I all the props are there there's a woman sitting there behind smoking a cigarette i mean i saw that movie after i became a dylan fan and i'm watching the movie and i didn't quite get that lou reed was playing this dylan-esque figure and then they get to that scene where it literally looks like a a you know, cinematic version of the cover. And I went, wait a minute, what? You know, and then I, then, you know, years later I looked it up and I was like, oh, that was, you know, they were, it was a goof on bringing it all back home. So that's fantastic. I I can't wait to listen to that. That sounds like a blast. Thank you. Yeah, it it was really a hell of a lot of fun. He did say that um, he would have loved to have had Bob Dylan, but he knew there was no way he was going to get him. (laughs) But uh, I think he knew someone who knew someone who knew uh, Lou Reed and Lou Lou was more, oh no, no, not at all. And Lou Reed was more than happy to do that. Uh, have you seen – I know we've sort of – we should have finished by now, but have you seen uh, the Paul Simon film One Trick Pony? Yeah, many, many years ago. Right. So Lou, Lou Reed is in that. And, uh, I mean, look, I, I love that you know, Paul Simon is making this story, but I think he should have had someone else write this script. I know that it was you know, supposed to be semi-autobiographical in some ways about you know the musician's life on the road and all that sort of thing. But I wasn't convinced it was a great film. But Lou Reed has a part in there as – I'm, I'm not sure what producer it's based on, but, you know, he's, hey, I know the commercial hit. I know what you should be doing. You know, we're going to put strings on all of this. And it seems very <laughs> anti-Lou Reed in that way. Uh, I, I far more enjoyed him in uh, in Get Crazy. He's a lot more fun uh, in, in that. Yeah, really, really very, very enjoyable scene. It's a fun movie. As if you haven't, if anybody hasn't seen Get Crazy, I don't know how available it is. It's, I, saw it's, it on, I saw it on VHS in the day, but it's a uh, lot of fun. It's it's on YouTube, and unfortunately, that's the only oh, way you're going to see it. It's tied up in um, oh, rights. song rights. Oh, well, look, for many years, uh, Arkush said that he couldn't find the um, the original print, the original negative for it, and they eventually, I think, they tracked it down to I think it was the MGM vault, and they basically were saying, "No, we're not prepared to go through the songwriting." Hell being clear, oh, and it's sort of, which makes me scratch my head because rock and roll high school I would have thought would have been song rights hell, and yet that's out there with beautiful pristine Blu-ray release, and I, I wouldn't have thought Get Crazy would be any more difficult than than rock and roll high school in terms of clearing the rights for that. And really, this is a film that needs to be seen, but really, it's on YouTube. I mean, for the moment, while it's still there, I urge anyone who wants a really well-told film. I mean, he said that he wanted to make a film that was more about his time at 
the Fillmore East a lot more honest. But the um, the studio execs had said, hey, this, this new film, Airplane, which was called Flying High in Australia for some reason, uh, they said, this film is the new film at the moment. We want you to make a film that's got uh, a dozen gags per minute. And he just wanted to get this film made. So I said, yep, okay, sure, I'll do that. And yet you can still tell that it's made by a man who loves rock and roll. It's, it's not mocking rock music. Yes, sure, it is about – it's very humorous. It is very airplane in its approach, but it is obviously made by a music lover. So um, it is one of the great rock and roll films. And it has Malcolm McDowell doing something that I won't spoil, but like the film, he has a conversation uh, that you need to watch out for. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I recommend watching on YouTube. Yeah, I think uh, everybody, I think Maurice and I are halfway to to uh, completing a film and water podcast on Get Crazy. So we're going to wrap up it. this Let's show now because we're, we're doing Pod Della here. We're going to wrap this up. Okay. So again, thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Of course, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And uh, of course, the show has an iTunes uh, uh, feed and a Spotify, a, a, a uh, Stitcher feed. Please leave the show review on iTunes. I don't really talk about iTunes reviews very much, but I will do be doing a feedback show again at some point, so I would appreciate some iTunes reviews. And uh, we're always talking about Dylan over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So, Maurice, thank you once again. This was a blast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until the next episode, we will see you later. Bye. Love you more than ever, more than time and more than love. I love you more than money and more than the stars above. I love you more than madness, more than dreams upon the sea. I love you more than life itself, you mean that much to me. Ever since you walked right in, the circle's been complete. I say goodbye to haunted rooms and faces in the street To the courtyards of the jester Which is hidden from the sun I love you more than ever And I haven't yet begun You breathed on me and made my life A richer one to live When I was deep in poverty taught me how to give Bad the tears up from my dreams they pulled me from the hole I love you more than ever and it burns me to the soul